Hello, everyone, and welcome back to But Did They Do It podcast. I am your host, McKinley Daw, and I'm hoping you're all having such a great week so far and enjoyed your weekend. Um, it snowed really bad. Not, like, really bad, but it snowed a lot here in Utah. I wish I would have gone skiing, but I didn't. It would have been such a good weekend for skiing, but at hey, some point, I'm going to go skiing, and it's going to be great. Anyways, um, there's not much going on right now. I still haven't figured out what's going on with the website. It's driving me nuts. I've tried like every possible way to try and get these pictures on there and it just takes it just keeps loading and loading and loading and I don't know why. If you're good with that sort of thing, let me know. <laughs> but yeah, I'm still trying to get that figured out. Um sorry guys. Um, but I promise I'm trying to get it sorted out and I'm going to figure it out eventually. Um, one thing I did want to mention that I, I, this is so random and I actually posted it on our Instagram stories like forever ago, but I like suddenly came to me as I was researching for this episode, but I never even brought it up on an episode. And I feel like this is a pretty significant update, not super significant, but it is an update on one of the very first episodes that I ever did for the podcast. Um, but I really just wanted to tell everyone, if you remember the Kimberly Simon case, it was a two-part, um, had two episodes, which if you haven't listened to it, definitely go give them a listen right now and then come back to this episode. But if you remember, um, I just did a a part one telling about the story, part two interviewing the investigator, and then there was a bonus episode where I interviewed the documentary filmmaker. Anyways, so the documentary on the case, um, actually the trailer for it came out. So that documentary is actually coming out later this year. I don't know on what platforms it'll be coming out on yet. Um, I, I think about this case all the time and it, I've gone down rabbit holes and I just really hope that it gets solved and that the coming out of this documentary changes the status of the case and that we find justice for Kim and figure out who killed her because it's just horrible. So if you haven't seen the trailer for the documentary, I'll post the link to it on Instagram again. Or you could just go onto YouTube and look up who killed Kim Simon documentary because that's the name of the documentary. Anyways, so sorry for the long update, but let's hop into today's episode. So today I'm going to be telling you guys about a nine-year-old girl who was brutally murdered in Nampa, Idaho, and the man who was wrongfully convicted for her death and was part of making strides towards helping the those who have been wrongfully convicted receive compensation in Idaho. This is the story of Daryl Lynn Johnson and Charles Fane. Nearly 41 years ago, on February 24, 1982, 9-year-old Darylyn Johnson left her home in Nampa, Idaho at around 8 a.m. Darylyn left her home, coat and backpack on, to brave the brisk Idaho cold as she walked to school at Lincoln Elementary that morning. She only made it about half a block when she was abducted off the street. Witnesses said they saw a suspicious-looking car, but I couldn't find in any of my sources what kind of car it was. Once it had become known that Darylin had gone missing, a search immediately began. I don't know when she was reported missing. This case is very underreported. It's the 1980s in Idaho. 
this just went completely over everyone's heads, I guess. Like, the details that I was trying to find were not anywhere. Like, seriously. So, two days went by without a sign of Daryl and they were searching high and low every corner of Nampa to find this little girl. But on the third day of the search, a fisherman found Darylin's body on the banks of the Snake River. An autopsy of her body revealed that she had been sexually assaulted and suffered blunt force injuries to her torso and her head. A different source also said that she had shown signs of drowning, so not sure what the exact cause of death was, whether it was drowning or blunt force trauma, just that both of those were apparent signs. So she probably had been killed and then dumped in the river. She had probably been in the Snake River for a few days before her body began to flow and showed up on the banks of the river. The community was shocked by this horrific act towards a child, since, like everyone says, these types of things don't happen here. But they can happen anywhere. It's always the place you least expect. Police immediately began working to try and get justice for Darylin and for her family. They began their search by collecting hair samples from many men in the area, most of whom were sex offenders. But for almost a year, nothing came of it and no leads presented themselves. And that's basically all that they did was collect these hairs, test them, nothing came from it. Because the hairs that they found on Darylin's body didn't contain the root, which, if you know anything about DNA tests, you need the root in order to, like, get any sort of identification from it. And that root wasn't present, so they were basically just comparing hairs, which can get a little bit tricky, and nothing came of it. So in March of 1983, police questioned Charles Fane. He was one of the men who had given a hair sample back in 1982, and police were basically just now getting around to questioning him. They are interviewing him because they say his hair was similar to the samples found on Darylin's body, which, if you've listened to the Kim Simon episode that I mentioned earlier, you would know why I hate that they are questioning and suspecting people based on similarities. Like, like, literally, you're going to bring this guy in and your hair is similar to the ones found on her body? Like, how how do you even say that? Like, any... I don't know. Like, you don't have the composite... Like, the composition. You're just looking at them. Like, how do you bring someone in and are convinced that they committed this horrific crime based on the fact that you're looking at their hair and the hairs that you pulled off the victim's body and you're saying, oh, they look... They look alike. Like, this, that could have been him. I, I seriously don't get it. I still don't get it. So, Charles also owned a car similar to the one that the witnesses said that they had seen at the scene of the crime, and he also lived a block away from the Johnson family as well. Charles was arrested and questioned, but he obviously denied any involvement in the crime, and he also passed a polygraph, which they're not really reliable anyways, and I guess it's just a good, like baseline thing but anyways despite the obvious and clear lack of physical evidence charles fane was charged with kidnapping sexual assault and murder at trial the prosecution tried to emphasize to the jury the similarity between charles's hair and the hairs found on the victim's body which like i brought up earlier you need the root for any identification to be made so 
the fact that they're emphasizing to the jury their hairs are these hairs are really similar but and that like landed with them shocks me because i mean i know not everyone is like this but personally if i was on a jury and some prosecutor standing up there saying we looked under a microscope at these two hairs and they look pretty similar i'd be like okay and like okay like i could have done that but anyone could have looked under a microscope and been like oh these look like kind of the same i don't know it's just i'm still mad about the similarities thing so yeah two police officers also testified that a shoe print found near the body could have been charles but they really weren't sure which wow i don't understand how any of this stuff is being let in how does the judge not have control over what is happening because seriously none of what the prosecution has presented thus far i can't believe this landed with anyone because i'm looking at this like how do you think this man did it based on this like this is ridiculous plus what like if some of these sources are saying that it appeared that she could have been drowned like or obviously her body had been left in the water for a few days the murderer's footprint wouldn't be near the body when it was found. Like, not to point out the obvious, but like, duh. Because if they had dumped her, she would have been in the, the river for a few days. They wouldn't have gone back and I don't know. I just, um, and like, it could have been his, but we don't know. Like, uh, what? Like, anyone's food, shoe print could have been near the body. Like, if my shoe print's near the body, you're going to say that I did it? Like, I... That doesn't make any sense to me. Why is this even being allowed? So, also, two jailhouse informants came forward as well, both saying that they heard Charles confessing to the crime while he was in jail awaiting trial, though both of these men were awarded lighter sentences for their testimonies. And which, if there is some sort of award for, like, in exchange for testimony, that has to be disclosed to the defense like obviously just that exchange of like evidence like that anything that comes up in court that that should also be turned over to the defense like or the prosecution or like like vice versa but one of these like these testimony deals i guess was not disclosed to the defense which is illegal so that's super awesome like seriously we're getting into misconduct we're getting into all this crap anyways one of the informants even came forward saying that cops threatened him with violence like violence if he didn't testify so he was literally threatened being like we're going to hurt you if you don't like get up there and testify to what we're telling you you heard which is absolutely ridiculous and illegal, obviously. The defense presented Charles's alibi, which he claimed that he was hundreds of miles away at the time of the crime. I don't know where he said he was, could not find that anywhere, but apparently he was not even in Nampa, Idaho. So you think that'd be pretty dang good alibi. And this was also corroborated by several witnesses that the defense put up at trial. So, but the judge found the polygraph, like, inadmissible. That was not going to be brought up in court. And apparently, all of this also came out during trial. 
two semen swabs that were taken from the victim's body were destroyed. Which, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> like, oh, I'll get into that more later. But on November 4th, 1983, Charles Fane was convicted of kidnapping, sexual assault, and murder. And in March of 1984, he was sentenced to death. Charles Fane began to appeal his conviction while he was riding away on death row. The Idaho Supreme Court ordered that the first trial judge hold a special hearing to investigate these destroyed semen samples. Which, in my opinion, that should have happened a long, long time ago. Preferably before a man was put into jail. Like, oh my gosh, how do you destroy that? That's like, you don't destroy evidence, period. Oh, God. So after this hearing... The judge ruled that the samples were destroyed in good faith, which what the does, what does that even mean? These samples could have given them an exact sure idea of who exactly murdered this innocent nine-year-old girl. And they're completely wiped from existence for whatever reason. Someone destroyed them. And this judge just thinks that's okay. Like, that's ridiculous. This is hard. Like, this is important evidence. And so... How do you destroy any amount of evidence and just you can just say, yeah, that was destroyed in good faith? Why? How? Like, I can't find what this decision anywhere. So I couldn't tell you why he thinks it was destroyed in good faith, how they were destroyed. But I just think in any way, shape or form, that should not have happened. Absolutely not. You keep every amount of evidence, no matter how insignificant, because you don't know its significance at the time. Like, that stuff comes later. Anyways, I think it's just absolutely upsetting and ridiculous that these were destroyed in good faith or whatever. So, despite this letdown, Charles continued to appeal his conviction. And in 1989, the state Supreme Court upheld Charles's conviction, but they once again ordered the first judge, which apparently this judge is ridiculous and has a lot of issues because they ordered the first judge to resentence Charles since they felt that this that the first judge had not properly weighed all relevant factors and they felt that the punishment was a bit too harsh because he's obviously on death row which is like the most severe type of penalty you can get but the judge once again just resentenced him to death which if you're if you're being ordered by a higher judge to resentence him you don't go with the same thing. I, I just feel like that's kind of obvious. I don't know. I mean, I probably shouldn't be talking because I don't, I'm not in that world yet. But I don't know. This just seems kind of obvious to me. I don't know. Maybe it's just me. I don't think it is. But hey. So in 1991, the state Supreme Court affirmed that decision. So, in 1993, the Idaho Innocence Project took up Charles's case and his new lawyers appealed to the U.S. District Court for the District of Idaho and they were granted a new hearing. The defense then carried out mitochondrial DNA tests on the hairs found at the scene, testing that was actually not available at the time of, this, of his trial. These tests conclusively proved that the hairs found on Daryl Lynn Johnson's body did not belong to Charles Fane. And in June of 2001, a U.S. District Court judge set aside the conviction and the prosecution did not seek a retrial. So Charles was released on August 23, 2001. 
At the time, Idaho did not have laws saying that exonerees were entitled to compensation. So for 20 years, Charles had to pick his life back up and start over after sitting in prison for 18 years of his life. Finally, in 2021, Charles Fain and Christopher Tapp, if you remember him from our Angie Dodge episode, which if you don't, go give that one a listen because it's actually really good, as well as other exonerated individuals from around Idaho, finally, with the help of legislators, passed laws that compensated those who have been wrongfully convicted based on the number of days they spent in prison. Charles Fain was awarded $1.3 million in compensation for his wrongful conviction, as well as a certificate of innocence. And in May of 2020, the Canyon County Prosecutor's Office announced that their second look into the case implicated David Daryl Rimple, who in 2020 was serving a sentence of 20 years to life for sexual assault of a minor. The DNA testing proved it was him, and he was charged with the rape and murder of Daryl and Johnson. Darylin was described as a happy-go-lucky child. She loved to play soccer and be with her family. There isn't much information on Darylin or where her family is today, but wherever they are, I hope they're happy that even though their daughter, sister, grandkid, and friend was taken from them, they found justice for her in the end. And that is the story of the murder of Darylin Johnson and the wrongful conviction of Charles Fain. I know that this one's a little bit shorter. I just really felt that I needed to do an episode on this case because it happened in my home state. And it kind of, I mean, not that any of these cases have a happy ending. It all, like in the end, someone was brutally murdered and it's horrible. But this is one of the few cases I feel like where they, in the end, find who actually did it and find like justified justice for the person, the victim. And I just felt like we needed a we needed to end on a good note for once in our lives on an episode because I feel like the past few have just been like, yeah, they never found out who did it, which those ones always suck. But hopefully you guys enjoyed that episode. Make sure to go follow our Instagram. It is at but did they do it pod and I will talk to you guys next week with a brand new episode. Bye guys.